Welcome to another DNVR Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Spano, and I'm really excited to jump into this. I hope you liked yesterday's interview with Super Bowl champion Ryan Harris. Really was a eye-opener, a, a great interview there that I think everybody should listen to. Today, we're going to go into a little different direction. We're bringing on Yu Cheng Cheng. He is the CEO of Top Golf Media. This was the creator of WGT World Golf Tour, biggest golf game in the world, 15 million active players as of today. And they sold that to Top Golf. He then becomes Top Golf's Top Golf Media's CEO and president. And that's really the entire marketing, advertising, and digital side of Top Golf. And he's just an incredibly bright guy. Literally, you know, I was going to say the smartest guy I know. I know some really smart guys, and I've had some smart guys on this podcast already. And I have some guys coming up that are really smart. But, you know, definitely in the convo, could take the cake. You know, he reminds me of Naval Ravikant a lot just in his demeanor. I don't necessarily know if ideology and philosophy falls in the same place there, but he oftentimes when I listen to Naval, which I do often, he reminds me of Yu Ching, very similar disposition. With that said, this interview is going to really dive into a lot of pointed business conversation. So if you've had enough philosophy from me, in the last week and you're ready to really get into, you know, uh, customer conversion and you're looking to get into marketing and you're looking to get into customer acquisition and things like that, then this is definitely going to be for you. We talk about brand partnerships. We talk about even raising money and scaling and knowing when to sell and when to raise. And so um, this is a great interview. Let's jump into books so we can actually get to this interview that I'm talking about. I'm reading Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor. I got to admit, I said that this would be a boring one and might not have a lot of great quotes, and I was wrong. It has incredible quotes. I think that this is a really important book. Uh, I think that, you know, the one thing that I do that I think people should do, and and I don't say this often because I don't necessarily believe that everybody should be copying another individual. We all have our strengths and weaknesses, and we should all be who we're going to be. But I do believe in parallel thinking, which is this idea that that we can look at one thing and frame it next to something else that's in a completely different sector or in a completely different folder of your life in a different category and you can learn something from this thing that's outside of this even if it's not analogous and you can use it to improve or enhance or help yourself in another category. Hopefully that makes sense. But I think that a lot of great leaders like Elon Musk are able to do that. I I think that, you know, when it comes to media and it comes to digital media, I was able to do a lot of that stuff coming from traditional to digital. And even just looking at how other industries do things, you know, this means that you go to a factory that makes mattresses and you say, wow, I run a factory that makes magazines, and now that I've seen how this mattress factory operates, I think I can improve my magazine operation here, just to throw out just a wild, you know, a a wild uh, comparison. But that's kind of how that works, and I mention that because... I think a book like this has so much value to it. There's so much knowledge inside of it about making decisions. I don't think you necessarily have to be an active public stock investor and day trader for this to work for you. And if you are, or you'd like to get better at that, then 
hey, this is really, really good book for you. So either way, some value here. This is a really great quote that I really loved here, and I believe this. And obviously, you know, when you read something and there's some inherent value there, you definitely believe in it. It strikes you a little more. Here's the quote. Heavy ideology can be one of the most dysfunctional extreme disorders. If you get a lot of heavy ideology young and then start expressing it, you are locking your brain into a very unfortunate pattern, and you're going to distort your general cognition. Outstanding quote. Let's go to the public markets. Netflix, NFL, X, all-time high, 468 right now. Uh, market is about 40 minutes from closing here on a Monday. Up 3.15%, highest that this has ever been. And, uh, you know, this is obviously representing streaming at a time where our habits as humans are becoming more and more entrenched in being in the home. And we're watching uh, more television, at least in a streaming capacity, uh, than we ever did before. So future looks bright for Netflix, uh, 468 up 3.15% on Bitcoin. Bitcoin right now at 97.08. It's up 7.16%. You know, Bitcoin is extremely strong right now. It is extremely strong right now. I think I mentioned last week that there could be a dip soon. I mean, it is performing so well. Uh, in the last 30 days, its weakest point was 86.32. Strongest point, 10.428. It looks like it's climbing. It's up 7% right now. So Bitcoin is looking outstanding. Let's jump right to the interview now. Yu Chang Chang, the CEO and president of Top Golf Media. I see you over there standing in awe, dropping your jaw, never heard nothing this raw, circular saw. Yu Chang was the co founder and CEO of WGT Media when it was acquired by Top Golf. He is now the president of Top Golf Media as well as a board advisor here at DNVR and a mentor and friend of mine. Really excited to have you on. Yu Chang, thanks for making the time, man. Yeah, total pleasure. Uh, for those who don't know, Yu Chang and his team created World Golf Tour, the number one mobile golf game in the world with over 15 million players. It's probably the number one golf game in the world on many metrics. And what's fascinating here is how they did it. This is a game, but the business crosses over into digital marketing, user acquisition, uh, ad revenue, distribution strategy, brand partnerships, lifestyle. So it's very dynamic, and, and that's why I wanted to have you Cheng on today. So before we jump into some of the crux of this, can you just, and this is going to be a tall task, but can you tell us the short form story of WGT from inception to acquisition? Yeah, sure. I can try to do that as fast as I can. <laughs> so, yeah. No time limit. It all, yeah, I know. It all started, uh, you know, with my own personal passion and where I found, you know, my skills really intersect. And that is around building businesses around very compelling content. And I'm a true believer that if you make something that's engaging and is well done, uh, such as yourself here, that you will get an engaged audience and you can find multiple ways of monetizing that audience. And so, you know, the content comes first. It just so happens that games and gaming tend to be the most engaging form of content out there. And, you know, I use a very broad sense of the word media because media, I think, is any sort of content that you consume. So... 
you know, WGT came out of the kernel of thought that in my previous company in startup, we powered uh, the World Poker Tour. And we helped build their first online poker uh, game and digital system. We helped bring MGM and Virgin Games online. And in each of those, we saw the player dynamics about the power of creating a big free-to-play funnel uh, and then moving that funnel into premium subscription or microtransaction system. And so we sold that previous company. And then uh, I started WTT because I was looking for a game with dynamics similar to online poker, and it was online golf. And at the time, uh, you know, EA uh, didn't have a, a mobile product. And so we went after an online mobile product really aggressively and built a business around a really engaged golf audience. And, and so you start getting traction on that, right? And yeah. people start playing that. So when do you get on Top Golf's radar? Geez, I'd say it's probably almost eight years ago, somewhere around that ballpark. Okay. So uh, their, their chairman and, and lead investor, Eric Anderson, uh, reached out to me uh, through a common friend of ours and someone who used to be on my board. And he said, hey, I'm building a, a golf company. Uh, we're using a lot of physical assets. And I said, well, I'm building a golf company too, and I'm using zero physical assets. So <laughs> we both laughed and uh, he said, you know, we're going to meet again. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we just had conversations and we kept up the relationship. And uh, ultimately, you know, we needed help at WHT. You know, you could have up and downs. And we knew that to reach the next level, we needed more investment or we needed more assets or more something. And we understood that it was the right time for us to, to either raise more money or join a bigger company. And so Eric was the perfect home for us. Is there a, you know, and... and knowing you, I, I know you're very, emotion doesn't just drive your decision-making uh, probably at all, but uh, is there, when you're looking at, you know, the difference between raising money or joining a bigger company, it, are you fighting any pride at all on the acquisition side of that, especially when it comes to control and, and environment, culture, um, all these things that might have to shift? Yeah, you know, and those are really hard decisions and, and they are completely emotional, but they also turn into real results because your culture matters a lot. And so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty analytical, but you know, as you've found out and as others is, you know, I also go with a lot of my intuition and gut and, you know, no matter what, if you raise money, especially if, you know, it's a, a strong investor, which is generally what you want or you sell, Either way, it's going to affect the culture. And there's a lot of companies I've invested in or that I've started and took investment in where, you know, I, I might have taken investing money from people who didn't have a good fit, specifically culturally, too. And, and it's very hard to sort of unwind yourself from that. I would say a lot of the companies that I've seen and stories that I've heard around the Valley they fail because of a lack of alignment internally. It's, it's usually not that much the market forces. It's your ability to go execute because everyone's got a good idea and most of the ideas can work out if you can execute them well. But if you can't get alignment between investors and your team and, and stuff, you will miss the timing and somebody else will take it. Yeah, timing is so crazy. I, actually, that first episode with Ryan, we talked about it. Uh, we tried to raise 
a lot of money in 2018 in scale at that point. And that would have, we talked about how that would, there's a good chance. I mean, you don't know, but there's a chance that could have completely, you know, broken the company because we hadn't developed into what we are yet. Yeah. You know, I'd say it's about 50, 50, 50% of the time investors are turning you down for a good reason and they're smart and you should probably listen and you probably should know uh, why they have a lot of pattern recognition. Like I see so many deals now and I've been through so much with so many founding teams, you know, over 30, 40 stories that I've been a part of that you can recognize things. And so you have pretty good uh, intuition of matching things up and when things are ready and when the time things. Uh, the other 50%, they're turning you down just because they don't have the time to even understand what your business is or they don't understand it or it doesn't fit their thesis, which is not in your control at all. And, you know, you just move on. And that's why I like to say uh, raising money is a lot like a, you know, numbers dating game. You just get out there and hit it up as often as you can through the right networks uh, and uh, you will eventually find fit. You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because I've felt often that, you know, as our revenue streams are so diversified and who we are depending is different depending on who you ask. And we have just all these different layers that I wasn't necessarily great at being able to paint the exact picture of who we are and who and, and why this matters and who we're going to be. But investors that also happen to be members that that knew this, that that I didn't have to sell this to. Well, you know, we have a handful of investors that were members that listen to podcasts that consume this, that are in, that follow the accounts on Twitter and stuff. I had Brandon Watson and the other day he's one of them. And uh, like they got it because I didn't, I wasn't there to screw up the pitch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is funny, right? Yeah. Funny thing to say, but, and so, and, and it wasn't, it's probably not even necessarily the pitch because they pitch well, but when it comes to the questions and the, you know, people want to be able to understand things at a really basic level so that they can get it and then they can make a yes or no decision. And sometimes when, especially when it comes to media and it comes to a lifestyle play, it can be really complicated. And, and like you said, sometimes there's just not enough time to, to dig in there. Well, there's a couple things to unpack there, you know, like, First of all, yeah, I, I got introduced to you through Zach and Ryan, right? I listened to them, you know, every day for a long time and right, right. You know, great team and good content. And, and here I am sitting with you. But, you know, I think that what I've seen at least and what I've experienced is that the difference between really great investors and sort of average investors is the ability to invest in teams and things that are not clearly connected yet. And they have the ability to sort of bridge that gap. And they don't really ask you who you are or, you know, what type of company you are, because I think good investors understand that you're always becoming something. And that's what Ryan said in your first episode here. And, and, you know, I almost never think about it as, Hey, we're here. This is who we are because, I truly believe and I think great teams and good investors know that you're changing, you're always innovating, you're growing, you're, you're not going to be stagnant. So the commonalities is a great team, very, very resilient people. And, you know, the cap table and balance sheet need to be in a way where you can get stuff done. 
So that's, right. that's really what, you know, I look for. Let's, let's jump into some business stuff here uh, from the operations standpoint. I want to go into digital marketing. It's something you, you guys have a good team around and there's so many different ways we can go here. So let's just start actually with some of the levers here instead of just top line marketing, but let's actually go to like user acquisition for us, we've done all different methods, whether it's free or paid. For us, we use a lot of our own platforms, whether it's podcast or social or our direct talents accounts to bring in users. I know that you guys have done a lot of different things. Can you just maybe give us a top-down look on, on the way you look at user acquisition? Yeah, you know, I think... A lot of what I think and believe has to do with, you know, my, my background and the fortunate uh, atmosphere of Silicon Valley. So, you know, a lot of my grounding is on just basic growth. People would like to call it growth hacking or whatever, but it, for me, it's finding product market fit. And, you know, you, there's a lot of experts at that. And, and if you have a good product and it's fitting a need and that audience is large enough, it's going to grow. And that's, that's a good way to sort of seed it and to focus on the, you know, the customer proposition. And, you know, it's like Bezos, he's entirely focused on the customer. And that, that's him just saying, I need product market fit all day. Now, if, if you talk to the hardcore folks, uh, they say that's all you need. And I, I think if you're lucky, you can get that virality. Um, but I, I would never bank on it. You know, even the best product marketing folks or the best, you know, service or experience people I know, they don't get it right 100% of the time. So what we do then is you juice it, right? You, you find that fit, you understand what metrics there are, and then you, you double down and you, you do paid marketing or you do influencer marketing, which is also somewhat paid. And that's effectively what you've done. You know, you've, you've acquired talent who help right. you get product market fit, but that talent brings an audience with them. And that, that's the modern world. You know, like all these, all these um, content, they're really just bringing audiences. And if you can tap into those audiences, then you can grow. But you, you do have to pay for some. And that's either through the talent audience network that you're acquiring, or it's through Facebook's audience that you're acquiring, or it's YouTube's or, or Twitter or wherever. At the end of the day, you're, you're paying for lookalike type of audiences um, that match who fit your product, and then you scale. And how hopefully has, you can get critical mass. How has paid acquisition changed for WGT over the last five years as far as the methods and the platforms that you guys spend the most on? Yeah, I would say that a lot of it in the beginning was, you know, just standard SEO, Google searching. You know, WGT started over 10 years ago. So, you know, Facebook didn't even exist. And then when Facebook came, it, we would quote unquote, ride the Facebook hack train where we would produce apps on the Facebook and leverage a social graph and get as many people as we can, you know, and, and build audiences there. And then Facebook decided to start charging you for that. So then, you know, you start paying them a bit and then, uh, you know, you start diversifying. So, you know, we do everything from app store optimization to using uh, other networks like the Samsung store or, or Google play. And then more recently, it's about content marketing and it's about influencers and it's leveraging other existing networks. So, you know, like the Steam network is a great example for gaming and, and we continue to tap other networks. 
how much of your decision making when it comes to marketing and we'll just step a little bit away from user acquisition now but marketing in general how much of it is is data driven at this point is it a hundred percent or are there some things that you guys just genuinely feel good about and that you want to try what does that look like yeah we like to call them success routines right so a lot of it is is data driven so the key in what i tell almost every entrepreneur and startup is is once you get product market fit is to understand what the lifetime value of each consumer is and once you understand what the LTV is then you can know what you can spend to acquire that user and then what you do is you go test sources for those users and then you see how much they're worth and you you know look at how much you paid and then you you see uh, if it's worth it or not now you know, there's some extrapolations and things that you can do that get you a leg ahead. So if you have really great retention, you know, and you have a good balance sheet, then you know you don't have to recoup every dollar within 30 days, right? You can, you can take a longer profile view of that. Right. Um, and the longer profile you can take and the more extrapolation you can do, the more aggressive you can be. And that's, that's ultimately what causes some companies and products to beat other companies is that they have the balance sheet and the analytics to allow them to look further forward than their competitors. And then they grab that market. We're going to go, you know, super deep into um, Nerdville here. Uh, so some people <laughs> might go right past them, but in your personal opinion, do you believe that for a front facing media company that is using talent to acquire audiences, that labor costs or talent costs should be included in your cost for user acquisition? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I think, I think that you, it is a, a valid strategy and you should, I always say that your, your P and L should reflect what your operating reality is and, you know, they are helping you acquire. So they, they're based, they're a cock. They create talent too. So you can allocate a percentage to, to acquisition and you can, a percentage of content creation and a percentage of whatever else they do. If, if it's truly a cog, then that's, a, you know, it would be for a media company, a pretty big blow to their GP. <laughs> yeah. And I am not a licensed accountant. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about distribution. You know, that's right now. It's just like, you have to be everywhere. If you're anything right. Like this podcast can't be just on Spotify unless they pay me, you know, millions of dollars like they just did to Joe Rogan. But for the most part, you've got to be everywhere. How did that look for WG? I mean, did you guys immediately just like, like say, Hey, we're always going to be everywhere. Did you start in one place? Did you ever try to look into getting onto console, for example? Like what does distribution look like for you guys from, from start to scale? Yeah, we tactically try to pick off distribution networks. So we don't try to be everywhere, but we want to be at the most important places. And that just has to do with their audience size and the, the fit of their audience to whatever we're offering. So, you know, I think, I think it's very important to pick the right distribution networks. You know, it's just like if you created a show for television and you were on the wrong network, well, that show will probably die. Right, right. So, you know, you, you, you got to leverage the networks for what they're good at. And they have already pre-aggregated an audience and they also have a way of distributing your content and promoting it. So, you know, 
I, I would use them for sure. Be smart about it. Know which ones are really going to help and which ones are there just to eat up your, your marketing account. I, you know, one thing that you guys do really well is I, I don't, I don't even know if I would necessarily call them partnerships, but you have uh, players and celebrities come on athletes and celebrities come on and play WGT and you'll stream those on YouTube and, and on Facebook and Twitch and uh, Periscope and get these big audiences in there. Do you walk in the month with a budget to get people like this on there and then you're looking for the biggest accounts? Is there people that your team is targeting on a quarterly basis? Are you trying to cross section these people into your current audience? Do you go outside of your audience so you could bring in new people to the game that, you know, like, like how does all of this work from the business side? Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about talent is talent is hard to wrangle. So, you know, most of the time we have intentions to do, you know, a certain number of influencers or talent or, or games and streams. But ultimately, I think our success is that we're very, very flexible to work at whatever their schedule is. And so, you know, we try to slot them in. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, they're not really getting paid all that much by us. And they're doing it out of passion because they love the brand or they love the That's product. Cool. So we, we just want it really flexible for them. You know, like we, we just did a deal with uh, Will Smith where we're doing a comedy show with him to promote, uh, you know, our, our brand, but really just to create some great content for our audience. And, you know, the reason why he's doing it is because he loves the content and he loves our brand. And so, you know, we don't want to force things on him and we don't uh, want the brand to take over from the content. And so we, we it, it's that freedom that allows us to do things that, uh, you know, other people can't or do it much more affordably. And, you know, in terms of who we target and what audience, you know, we try to do about 50-50. We, we do about 50% focus on our core audience and who we know they want to see and whose audience we will satisfy. Um, and then the other 50% is we try to find shoulder audiences or shoulder talent that can help grow our audience uh, to new people who have never heard of us. There's a couple things you that you just said that reminded me of a quote you told me in person. So I'm going to pull one of those in here. And, and this was totally tongue in cheek, so, but I'm going to have you kind of drill down into what this actually means. But you at one point said like, well, yeah, because, you know, once you get a, I think it was talking about spinning off into DNVR gaming and DNVR watches. At one point early in the pandemic, we were watching a Netflix reality show with our community and trending. And you said, well, yeah, because once you become a, a real lifestyle company, you can create whatever the hell you want. It's something in that ilk. So can you just kind of drill down into that and, and talk about what that means? <laughs> Well, it goes back to one of my marketing principles, which is just the best, the hardest thing to do is build trust with your audience. And, you know, you, you've done a fantastic job and DMVR has done a fantastic job in, in building that trust. And that is like not only sort of journalistic and, and content integrity, but it's consistency of that, that you're always going to come out with content. You're always going to be on topic. You're always going to deliver value for the community. You're going to listen to your community. It's not just, I, I love that. What um, I think it was either you or Ryan who said it the other day, where you know you're not the one on the stage. You're more like you're back in the crowd. And yeah, you know, yeah, The community yeah. takes the stage. Like that's an un unbelievable, accurate way of, of saying it. And and once you're in the crowd, you build that trust. And once you build that trust, 
you know, the community grows on its own. And they start talking to each other and they start opening up about when their birthdays are and when their deaths are and when they get fired and all the hard stuff in life that community is wonderful for. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we all just want to belong. We want to be accepted. Um, we want to be acknowledged that we exist. So, you know, once you have that, then yes, you absolutely can have permission to spin off almost anything and grow the audience just understand what built the trust in the first place and don't violate it. So with that said, would you consider WGT a lifestyle company? And if so, can you just maybe tell us in your opinion, what is a lifestyle company for those who keep hearing this term and wondering what that is? Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't say WGT really is a lifestyle company. You know, we're, we're entertainment service, but I think that's the power of why we felt like you know, joining Top Golf was the right move. Top Golf is absolutely a lifestyle company, and you know, we we picked them right. Like my my team, my final team, were over eighty percent of the team four years after the acquisition is still here, mm, and that means that great. we picked the right cultural fit. And not only are we still here, but the product is thriving. The, you know, um, we're helping the organization a ton. So you know, I think that. You know, with Top Golf, we are a lifestyle, and for me, what that means is that uh, you're not just providing a service; you are beginning to provide value beyond the single transaction. But you're providing both emotional and everyday value around things that they have to do, you know, normally. And if you can do that, and you can, you know, increase your sort of frequency a value to them instead of just once a day or once a month or once a year. Um, and you start interweaving yourself into the fabric of their decision-making, right? Their hierarchy of how they spend their time and how they value and, and where you've done a great job is, you know, you've woven DMVR into the identity of your audience in your community. So they want to wear your shirt. They're proud of it. And they often describe themselves not as just, Hey, you know, I'm Brandon, but I'm Brandon and I'm a, a follower of, of DMVR. I am a, a DMVR, right? And the same thing happens with Topgolf. People identify with it. An early sign that we knew we were becoming a lifestyle company is, you know, our associates' uh, uniforms were, were disappearing. And we're like, wow, you know, when we were a 500-person <laughs> company, that's not a very big deal. Like, yay, we're happy. When you're 20,000 people and you're losing a ton of shirts, starts hitting the balance sheet. <laughs> so, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, uh, what's going on here? And what we realized is it wasn't just our associates, it was actually our guests too. They all wanted to wear the shield. And so we we're like, well, we, we better start selling this. So, you know, we actually make money from it instead of losing money. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's, that's great. I want to go back to WGT on one thing and then I want to go, it, we'll, we'll kind of go to Top Golf on some of the stuff that you guys are doing right now inside of this pandemic, which I, I think is interesting. I do want to talk about brand partnerships though. It's something that we're really heavily into. You know, at DNVR, we almost become the brand that we partner with. Like uh, they're so intrinsic to us. Like, you know, like we are DraftKings people who drink Breck beer you know, and drink Strava Craft coffee. And it's like, it's, it's like if you were to drink a different coffee in our house, it would be like you going to your in-laws and putting A1 on your father-in-law's steak or something, you know, like whatever, whatever the, the, the thing is. But 
it's 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 a point of pride. It's it's uh it's it's who we are. People, some people think like, doesn't Breckenridge own you guys and stuff? You know, and, and it's because we are, you know, it's it's so intrinsic to what we do and who we are that people really think that there's a merger there. Now, I, you know, that's, that's for us, as me and Ryan talked about, you know, we do a lot of things. It's just for us, not necessarily whether or not it's in the, you know, business handbook of, of that you get out of uh, MBA or whatever, but that makes sense for us. For you guys, I noticed that on your uh, game, there'll be different things. You've done partnerships with clothing brands that you can get on the game and golf brands, different clubs, putters. So can you just walk me through your, you know, the way that you look at brand partnerships and then maybe even just kind of dive into, uh, are you pretty choosy on what those are? Is it an arms deal on who pays the most? Like, like how do you, how do you look at all that? Yeah, I would say that um, for WGT, it's actually relatively brand light and that that's intentional. Uh, you know, we, we are, dedicated and focused on, you know, producing a very realistic and authentic game. And that's why we do the partnerships we do. And I'd say we're, we're pretty darn picky in WGT. And I think that where, where you are with DMVR, that's the utopia that you can find partners that are so aligned with who you are and in your audience that you can live and breathe it. And, you know, that that's magical. And, uh, you know, that's what most companies want to want to persist and want to develop. And, you know, as you scale, it's obviously going to be harder, but you're, you're going to have to remember that. And, you know, and at Topgolf, like our, our, we do a lot more brands. Um, we do both regional and national deals and, and local ones. And yeah, we have really hard conversations about, Hey, yes, we have a number to hit and we have to show a certain amount of growth and we got to pay the bills, but is this the right brand for us or not? And, you know, I'd say that uh, it's an ongoing conversation that's very, very difficult, but you got to stay true to who you are or else your brand will deteriorate and, you know, you forget about it. Yeah, I remember one conversation where Lindsay had a really big account that, you know, wanted to partner. I'm not going to name the company here, but, you know, it's a chain and I'll just say that, you know, the people who work there may or may not be wearing a lot of clothing, you know, uh, when you go in there to get your beer and wings. So I'll leave it at that. And, you know, I think for a lot of maybe even traditional, I think that anytime you have a big male audience, people automatically think you fit for things like this. Our team looked at this and just was like, there's no way that we can do this partnership. There's no way we could put this in front of our members it just didn't make sense, you know. There, there's no amount that they can pay to 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 make that make sense for you, you know. So, just kind of a of of a of a kind of a quirky story there for on our side. But yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I totally agree with that. You have to be, you know, especially in your case, where they're going on. You know, they're visually sitting inside of your game. So, it's it's got to be a match there. Yeah, I, I, you know, we have a similar point of view. You know, our North Star is we try to think long-term. So, you know, taking on that brand may look great short-term, but you know long-term, building your authenticity and your audience, you know, it's, it's not the right decision. So, Okay, so I want to jump into our uh, little quick round here. I've got some questions for you. Let me pull this up. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
I try not to be as a uh, you know, multifaceted as, as your previous guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, that's, a, you know, there is a thing, it's being too smart, it's a real thing. <laughs> um, okay, so let's jump into this. So uh, I got three questions for you and then we'll get you out of here. What is your most important book? <laughs> of course, that one's first. And of course, this is where I violate it and become like everybody else. So the business obvious answer for me is Mindset by Carol Dweck. Um, It is an unbelievable book about what an elastic brain and philosophy and and a growth mindset look like. And that, you know, it's just a realization that things will always change and you're always learning and that very, very few things are actually final. And I think for me, why it's really inspiring is, as a, an athlete, when you're young, you think everything is just so catastrophic and, you know, everything is just so big. And when you don't win that game or whatever, that your life is over. And, but instead, if you view it as the learning experience in your next step, then, you know, it's a, it's a good way of getting out of things. And from a founder's point of view, I think that's kind of what keeps me from, you know, like falling into massive depression when things go bad or whatever, like it's, it's hard, right? You, you associate yourself with your job and your company and things so much. And if you think that that's final and that's what defines you, then, you know, you're going to be in a really tough place, which I know we've all been in. Um, but if you can just remember that it's just temporary, that's why it's important. And so that's why I love the book, you know, and, and there's all these great quotes about like how change isn't actually hard. It's just when you fight change, that's really hard because you know, you're going to lose. <laughs> and, uh, and just having that growth mindset, I think, is really important. But the book that I, I personally and um, emotionally most attached to is just The Giving Tree. You know, it's oh, just two that I haven't read. It's so true, and how you 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 give and if you don't expect anything in return. Um, that that's truly the gift, and I think it's just a great way of you know living a, a good karma life and and doing the best you can. That reminds me, have you ever read The Go-Giver? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good one. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty good one. Um, yeah, you know, what you, were, what you said originally about the mindset, uh, it reminds me back of, uh, me and Ryan talked about it in, on our pod the summer of 2018, and I, I'm going through this just insane time and uh, I've got personal stuff going on, the business, which, by the way, I still haven't addressed that stuff. At some point, I'll go to a psychologist and address that stuff later when I have time to. And, uh, you know, we're trying to keep the company alive. Ryan talked about the 90-day plan. If we're alive in 90 days, we will have made it and stuff. In the middle of this, uh, and this is at the point where I talk about where I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm at war every day and Ryan's in a good mood and it's pissing me off. So in the middle of all of this, uh, a friend of mine says, you need to go to a movie. And this isn't like one in the afternoon and I'm like buried. He's like, you need to go to a movie and see the worst movie there. And I'm like, I, and I'm, I like called him to talk to like get some advice. I'm like, why, why in the hell would I go to a movie right now? He's like, because you will go in there and then two hours later you'll walk out and you'll realize that nothing has changed, that the world is still here 
and that you're still operating in the same world and that your problems didn't get worse and they didn't get better and things are just things. And it, it you know, but you need perspective like that. Cause right now you're in the middle of all this stuff, trying to dissect all these things and you're not sleeping and, and you're a disaster, you know, needless to say, I didn't go to a movie that day, but I remember the point and it made a lot of sense. Right. And this is kind of like what you were just saying. Yeah. You know, it's about, you know, all the stuff that you like to talk about, but it's being mindful and it's being present, you know, like things are bad, but that's just, just another experience too. And if you, if you wish the days away, you tend to miss out on them. And, you know, I, I do truly believe that it's not about making the storm go away, but it's learning how to dance in the storm and, and accept it. And, mm. and that is actually a, you know, a beautiful part of life. And it's just, it, it is this thing about becoming like we like to find finality. We like things to be set, but the reality is nothing really is. And once you accept that and learn to live that way and dance it and not fight it, then things get a lot easier. That's an incredible quote. I love that. I really love that quote. Okay. The most underrated athlete of all time. Nah, well, I'm a hardcore abs fan. So I would actually say it's Mike uh Ricci. So, oh, Ricci. Okay. Ricci. so <laughs> he's you know you need that grinder you need that locker room guy and i don't think they would have won the stanley cup without him so. yeah uh missing teeth and all right oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah he really doubled down on hockey guy look old mike Ricci. <laughs> um sure. What space or business are you most excited about in the near future? Well, I, I think that this year, regardless of how painful it is, it is forcing a lot of change. And I think a lot of people will look back at it as a sort of a cultural and transitional year that actually a lot of goodness will come out of the pain. And that, you know, the things that I see is, Obviously, you know, more understanding of diversity and inclusion and the racial pain that's happening in this, this country, but also around the world, but specifically um, with, with Blacks and how they live uh, with the years of oppression. But I also think that it's also, you know, pushing everything to the edge. And it's democratizing, you know, the, the more individual or common folk. And it's not about big conglomerates and, you know, their control of, of things. So, you know, all this work from home and all the tools um, that empower folks such as yourself to build businesses, uh, I think is extremely exciting. And, you know, people will be able to work from Hawaii and build massive companies and work with remote teams, uh, regardless of whatever their social economic status is. And that uh, the individual, the creator, the innovator is going to retain more of the value going forward than they have in the past, uh, you know, century. Where, you know, um, you know it, can you imagine being the founder of, of McDonald's today and not getting, you know, bought out by that uh, funder and all that stuff? Like, that, that's the world we live in now where you're not beholden to the old structures of, sort of wealth and finance and the distribution of that. It's very, very exciting. because I think we're going to see amazing companies with amazing opportunities and it's going to spread out 
the opportunity even more. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think that that's, uh, I think you nailed it there. Absolutely. I think that uh, this is the, and this is also the first time I think in world history where the creator uh, is really going to have the leverage. The artist has the leverage. I think forever the artist has been in, in kind of auxiliary component to society and you know, they've been paid off of based on, you know, how many hits they could produce or whatever. I think that, you know, now in this world where, you know, everybody has a voice and attention matters, you know, that's quickly becoming one of the most important things. So we're seeing creative people, we're seeing left brain people that may not have been the first to go to, you know, Stanford and, and code or, or whatever and coders are always going to be there making a lot of money, but we can go the other way and go to MBA, whatever it is. I, I just think that there's this, this side now where we're going to watch content creators and, 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 and that, you know, that's such a vast overlying thing. When you say content creator it can go a million different ways. We're going to see those people really be in high demand and really at the top of, of companies and be, you know, thought leaders and all of that stuff for the first time, we're seeing a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, children growing up now are seeing, you know, role models and paths being paved in a way where they can be their creative selves, that they don't have to go into more standard, you know, roles and occupations to pay the bills. I mean, I think we're going to see a, a large flourishing of, diverse, innovative things, which just super excite me. And, and the, the second part of the beauty of what's going to come out of this year is, you know, at least for some time being a lot more civic participation, you know, I, what, what you and, and Brandon Watson talked about, right? Like, I think there's an opportunity to reward people who generally want to serve the public. And, you know, it's, it's not that the, funds and Facebook is stealing all the talent is that we, we, it's true. We're just not rewarding the people to do what we want them to do. <laughs> and I think we want people to apply creativity and innovation to leave the world or this country a little better than they found it. And, you know, I think that that transparency and that realization is starting to happen. And it, at least in, in my world, I, I encourage, you know, all the people, uh, especially technologists who don't like to talk about politics and don't like to talk about government because they feel it's taboo that, you know, you, you, you can no longer stand on the side and just, you know, have things happen to you anymore. Right. You've got to go hack and grow and think about solutions for your civilization and government, just like you do about your consumer proposition. Before I let you out of here, I do have one more question here and I, I really appreciate your time because I know that uh, I've probably had you on the line now longer than anyone has this entire year if it wasn't a board meeting. So uh, there's a lot being said about Silicon Valley right now, you know, whether, and, and I know that Musk isn't necessarily in the Valley, but Musk leaving California, Cal Canis has said like a ton of stuff. We're seeing San Francisco real estate, have all this stuff, right? is there a legit threat to decentralizing Silicon Valley? 
Oh, well, I, I don't think it's a threat. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's going to decentralize. It always has been. This is just accelerating it a little bit more. But there's still value in, I believe, the in-person interaction and, you know, the things that you can gain through, you know, seemingly uh, osmosis or generalities of hanging out. And those, those things are, are just going to be distributed as they should. You know, Silicon Valley should not be on our sort of high horse and say that this is, can only be replicated here. And it's, it's absolutely not true. But, you know, the fundamentals of Silicon Valley are still there, which is just, you know, the amount of schools and people and people who are willing to help. And, you know, I'm, I'm a transplant. I wasn't born in, you know, San Francisco. I was born in Boulder, Colorado. And, you know, I, I made my way over here and I made my way over here because of the acceptance of diversity. You know, I felt like there was a lot more opportunity and I made my way here because, you know, merit uh, is rewarded slightly more than, than other things. So uh, I think those things will always stay with Silicon Valley. And, you know, if, if you need help, there's no other place that you can go and just get so many people willing to mentor you and give you advice. Will that spread out and be available somewhere else? Uh, yeah, but the concentration, I think, will, will still be meaningful here. Before you get out of here, why don't you just tell everybody kind of what Topgolf is doing, you know, to make it safe for everybody that's going in there, uh, how you're addressing um, social distancing and being safe and clean and all that stuff, because I know that you guys have spent a lot of time to get that right. Yeah, well, uh, the Top Golf in Colorado are, are uh, open and, uh, you know, in Thornton and in Centennial there. And, you know, we've been very, very thoughtful about it. Uh, we, you know, we work with all the local health organizations uh, to make sure that we're following the guidelines to the best of, you know, everyone's knowledge, right? Everyone's learning here. So, you know, what we thought a month ago is not what we think now, but we try to do the best. The beauty of, you know, top golf is it is an indoor outdoor activity and, you know, you're, you're in an air cooled environment, but you're outdoors and there's a lot of flow of air. We clean the surfaces really well. We make sure that people uh, don't have to congregate and can't, you know, we, we give you reservations. So you just show up and get whisked away to your bay and your bay is easily socially distanced from other people. And we put up, you know, little uh, dividers to help. So we're doing everything we can, you know, and we're, we're making sure that um, you're as safe as you possibly can. Awesome. Great stuff, man. I thank you so much for the time and uh, so many great things inside of this. So Everyone's going to love this. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing. When the youth took a second look, slowly looked up from their books and they stared at their professors, their predecessors, mentors. Then the kids turned into centaurs, clicked their hooves at your mythology. Follow me. Then they asked why you would try to lie so pathologically.